to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. Oh, listening live on Block Talk Radio, SHI Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my debonair, erudite, and oh-so-handsome co-host, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Am I screwed up today yeah. or what? <laughs> I don't know, but you know how to make the guy blush. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> great intro. Don't let your wife listen. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I'm let your wife you. listen in. She's probably <laughs> coming after me with a rolling pin or something. <laughs> wow. So we got some good oh, guests man. ahead, it looks like. Yeah, you know, I hadn't realized it, but it's been about two years since I last had Robert Spencer on. I really do have to go through my address book because I do I keep it literally a handwritten address book with my guest in there. And right now, half of it is stacked with notes to put in there to put people's names in. I, it is getting thicker and thicker and thicker by the day. I mean, eight and a half years wow. doing the show, and holy moly. I, some of the people are just unbelievable. Uh, the guests I have had, and just what a wonderful ride I've had. Holy, I, I, I would hate the day I have to hang up these headphones and the microphone because I've had so much fun. Today we've got Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch. He's returning to us. But you also have a new guest joining us, John, John Tamney. Uh, he started off with Real Clear Politics, and then when they branched out to Real Clear Markets, uh, he went into there. Um, he's got a new book out called The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. And also, we've got Robert Spencer is coming out with a brand new book in August called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. So, oh, if we don't end up on the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate list, I don't know what else we can do to end up on it. (laughs) So we'll join Kel up there soon. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we've got a lot to do, a lot to talk about. And um, for some of you that have been sending me little notes and, and, and comments, thank you. The eye surgery is is coming out pretty well um, at that halfway stage where I'm using store-bought eyeglasses, no longer prescription. Uh, but if you see me, if you're watching me on YouTube or Facebook, if you see me squinting at the screen or leaning in, it's because I'm trying to get things into focus. 
until they can give me a new prescription for eyeglasses. Uh, my readers, actually, I'm actually driving without eyeglasses, which is the first thing I've done in, oh, good Lord, maybe 30 years. So it's a pleasure to be able to get behind the wheel and not have to worry whether or not you can see the road. Uh, anyway, I want to welcome everyone that's listening in in the, uh, the the chat room that is joining us up on Facebook and YouTube. I'll try to keep track of all the chats going on there. But those that listen to the show know that we do start each and every show off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going out to two fallen heroes. It is going out to Army Sergeant Roshan Uvince Brooks and Alan Levi Stigler. Jr., who died on August 13th of last year, 2017, while serving during Operation Inherent Resolve. And this is from the Daily Mail from the UK. Two soldiers who were killed in Iraq during an artillery mishap that injured five others have been identified by the Pentagon. Sergeant Roshan Uvince Brooks, 30, and Specialist Alan Levi Stigler Jr., 22, were involved in a heated heated battle with the ISIS fighters when the accident occurred. There is no indication that ISIS had anything to do with this, Pentagon spokesman Colonel Rob Manning told the Army Times. The injured soldiers were evacuated by air, and two of the soldiers subsequently died. Sergeant Roshan Brooks, that you see on the left in the pictures, 30, and Specialist Alan Stigler Jr. that you see on the right in the pictures was 22, were both killed in Iraq due to an artillery mishap while taking on an ISIS mortar position the Pentagon has confirmed. Manning said that they had been running a counter-fire operation on an ISIS mortar position when they were killed. Both soldiers were assigned to the 2nd Battalion, 319th Airborne Field Artillery Regiment, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division, out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Stigler received a posthumous promotion to sergeant. Both men were awarded several medals after their deaths. Brooks was from Brooklyn, New York, and was on his first deployment to Iraq after joining the Army in 2012 and serving at Fort Hood, Texas, before joining the 82nd. He had previously been deployed to Afghanistan from June through November of 2014. Stigler was from Arlington, Texas, and joined the Army in November of 2013, serving in South Korea from May of 2014 through June of 2015. This was his first combat deployment. Stigler received a posthumous promotion to sergeant after his death. Both men were awarded the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, Meritorious Service Medal, and Combat Action Badge. Sergeants Brooke and Stigler were courageous patriots and both paratroopers who served our coalition and the people of Iraq with extraordinary commitment, said Colonel Pat Work of the 2nd Battalion Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division's commander in a statement. Our team extends its most sincere condolences to their families and friends. Their personal commitments to our campaign against ISIS were extraordinary, and we are incredibly proud to have served with them. 
In the wake of the incident, Stigler's family responded to their loss online. Shanta Stigler, his cousin, posted up photos of him in uniform with a message, Missing you, cousin. Another relative, Rosie Stigler, made the young man's photo into her cover photo, inviting messages of condolences for her friend. Stigler's cousin posted this on her Facebook page. The Pentagon said that neither man had died directly as a result of ISIS. More than 5,000 U.S. troops are taking part in the war against ISIS in Iraq, according to the Pentagon. The vast majority operate within heavily guarded bases, collecting and sharing intelligence with Iraqi forces and providing logistical support. But as the fight has evolved over the past three years, more and more U.S. troops are operating close to the front lines. Today's show is dedicated to both sergeants, Roshan Uvins Brooks and Alan Levi Stigler, Jr. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women out there serving. Be they first responders, law enforcement officers, firefighters, or emergency services, or in our military, those who have served from the birth of our nation through today and into the future. We dedicate to them this song by our friend Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one of them, and may they protect their families and give them comfort in their grief.
another person I really do have to get back on the show. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains. The Lone Star Daily News. Let me get that one correct. Poor Dan Butcher probably kicks me in the butt every time I screw that up. Lone Star Daily News. Up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. we got to make a little money here, so I'm going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a few seconds while we wait for our guests to call in. i got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me, but I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? (laughs) Who doesn't? If so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, and we're back. Oh, you're here listening to Southern Sense again, once again, on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, half a dozen other places. All the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com, and check out the Earthwater link. As I said, you can become an affiliate and earn some money on the side, and who doesn't want to make money? I do. You do. So check out Earthwater on my website. And, Curtis, we've got our guest here in on the line waiting patiently, the next victim of our show. 
show returning guest, and I'm sorry I haven't had him back more often, Robert Spencer of JihadWatch.org, part of the David Horowitz Freedom Center Foundation. Good afternoon, Robert, and beat me with the wet noodle for not having you back on more often. I apologize. <laughs> me and Well, me thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes, thanks for having me on now. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, Hello, it's a Robert. pleasure. And you've got a new po- – oh, this is my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Yes, Hi, we Curtis. got you, Robert. Yeah. Uh, uh, Curtis is trying to ri- rival you because he's up to 24 books. I don't know how many you're up to now, but you got a new one coming no, out Curtis this is August. Way ahead. I only people- got 18. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's a battle of wits. <laughs> uh, but you've got a new one coming out this August on the 7th that people can go and pre-order. Uh, they can go to the link on the show and we'll go to Jihad Watch where they can click on that to get your new book, which is coming out August 7th called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Man, oh man, uh, you are you are an amazing person with all the books you're coming out and the fight you've taken. I've had so much fun following you on your website. And uh, you just recently got into a battle of wits with this gentleman from a new uh, website called NewsGuard. I had so much fun reading that article. And I knew it was going to go. But with the, the rise of fake news, and now all these websites are trying to vet out what is fake news and real news, they're going after people like you. And I, I just found it so amusing. Well, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, NewsGuard is a... Uh is one of the new initiatives that the left is trying to uh, set themselves up as arbiters of what is accurate and what isn't. And actually, the supposed arbiters of this are hard-left ideologues who are trying to enforce a hard-left agenda by condemning all those who dissent from that agenda as being fake news. And so I had a little fun with this guy Uh, You can read the story on Jihad Watch in the front page mag indicating his own biases and his unwillingness to admit them and the uh, dishonesty of his whole enterprise. It's really just an attempt to stamp out all voices that dissent from the left by claiming that they're all inaccurate. Uh, It was so funny because, you know, he starts off where it sounds like, you know, he's really up moderate he's trying to walk the center of the road but as you pulled him out and you started asking him questions it was just wonderful to watch the way he danced around him or simply just flat out didn't answer the questions and yet he was demanding answers from you and failing to provide you with answers the hypocrisy from the left was just so blatant in this thing that you you posted yeah and that's what the left is all about Uh, It's increasingly a movement that is against the freedom of speech and trying to shut down all dissent. And this is a very disturbing development because, of course, the freedom of speech is the foundation of any free society. And if we don't have the freedom of speech, then we do not have a free society. And so for the left to be trying to shut down everybody that is not reflecting its point of view is essentially a totalitarian agenda. You know, cause it, it's funny because, you know, they're demanding answers from us, but then when we ask them the questions, they won't answer it. When you challenged him on his knowledge of the Quran, the Hadith and all the other books that explain Islam that were from Muhammad and from Muslims, he 
did not even answer whether or not he had read them. And yet he spouted the dialogue without even admitting that they had any actual knowledge of what the truth of Islam is. Yes. Well, this is very common. Uh, you have I, I see it routinely, actually, in hit pieces about me in leftist publications. I see them saying, well, he actually says that Islam uh, and the Quran teach violence and that they mandate warfare against unbelievers. And they present this as if it's some terrible thing to say, when actually there's plenty of proof of it. It's readily demonstrable. Anybody that opens up the Quran can see it for himself. Oh, that is the truth. Because I went to a, um, I think I told you this last time you were on, I had gone to one of these local town (laughs) things at a um, Unitarian church where it was love thy Muslim neighbor. And I went with my Quran in hand. And when the Iman started to to recite the verses that that the Muslims can be friends with the Christians and the Jews, he left off the last of the sentence where it said before the prophet Muhammad, meaning before Muhammad was born, it was okay to be a Christian and Jew, but once Muhammad was born, you had to convert to Islam. And that didn't go over too well, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. They, they, don't want, they don't want people to show up at those outreach meetings who know anything about the topic because they want to be able to essentially mislead people at will. That they do. That they do. You know, um, one of the things that we've been following is uh, the Tommy Robinson, uh, because we have several people in the, in the chat room that are friends with him uh, right now, and uh, we've had uh, him on the show at one point in time. But what has gone on with him and the freedom of speech that is now occurring, the lack of, I should say, the lack of freedom of speech that is occurring in Europe and elsewhere that we still are fighting to maintain here in the United States is blatant and he is behind bars simply for reporting about these Muslim rapists, pedophiles, whatever you want to call them that are on trial in England and he's been sent to jail for 13 months for exercising freedom of speech and there recently was a rally uh, that another friend of ours, a friend of the show uh, Tim Burton had posted up there and I'm amazed he's not behind bars in England right now for reporting on it. But you also reported on it, uh, on this Tommy Robinson. And tell us what you, you've been hearing and seeing about this. Well, the thing is that the uh, British government insists that what they have done in jailing Tommy is completely legal because he was under a court order. And the court order was that he was not to do any broadcasting outside trials. And... That might seem superficially reasonable until you realize that what it really was all about was that Muslim rape gangs were running rampant all around the UK. And well over a thousand, maybe tens of thousands of girls in the UK have been raped and made into sex slaves and prostitutes by these Muslim rapists who consider them fair game because they are infidel women and the Quran allows for the sexual sex slavery of infidel women. So you have this going on all over Britain, and for years, authorities did not prosecute. People would go to the police, the girls would go to police, the parents of the girls would go to police, and the police would say, there's nothing we can do, go home, forget about it. And this went on so long, and only Tommy Robinson and a few others were calling attention to it. Finally, when he was broadcasting one day outside of trial, 
he was warned not to broadcast outside of a trial because he was calling attention to how British authorities had ignored this problem for so long and been more afraid of being called racist than of the rape gangs themselves. And so this is really – the arrest of Tommy is really an attempt to continue this cover-up and to keep people from knowing just how bad things have been in Britain and how the British authorities are complicit complicit in how bad they've been because they have not wanted anyone to report about these uh, about these issues. And that's why they issued the first court order about to Tommy, and that's why really it's ultimately an unjust enterprise because it's not about protecting the victims, certainly, and it's not about protecting uh, the integrity of the legal process. It's just about making sure that as few people as possible know about how they have been so criminally negligent. Yeah, it, it is amazing that uh, they want to hide this. And it's not just in England. There was also an incident in uh, Germany um, where they ended up you know, stifling any uh, reporting about... Uh, this Muslim immigrant that had uh, beheaded a one-year-old, stabbed the mother, beheaded the one-year-old. But in Germany, you were not allowed to mention the fact that the child was killed, the mother was stabbed, this was a Muslim. They're trying to hide the fact that we do have a problem with the Islamists being extremists. Yes, exactly. That is exactly what is the effort here. They're trying to make sure that as few people as possible know what's going on. Robert, yeah, isn't yeah. it true? Isn't it true that um, in Europe, the Muslims there are doing their best to try to impreg- impregnate as many women as they possibly can, so their sons would be Muslims, so they can take over, almost in like a silent coup, you know, without firing a shot. They just overpopulate those countries with, you know, babies that are Muslims. Well, this is something that is going on all over the world in, uh, to a certain degree. There is a phenomenon in India known as love jihad, and the Hindu population in India is very upset about this and has been trying to call attention to this for years, where Muslim men woo and marry Hindu girls or uh, non-Muslim girls in general, and they are uh, just trying to get them to convert to Islam and to raise Muslim children so that the non-Muslim community is diminishing and the Muslim community is expanding. And this is uh, also going on in Europe, the massive rates of rape and uh, 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 sex assaults and so on, they come from this notion in the Quran that a Muslim man can take infidel women as sex slaves. But also there is this same phenomenon of Muslims wooing and winning over non-Muslim women and girls to try to get them to convert and thereby to increase the Muslim community at the expense of the non-Muslim community. The idea is always that Islam must expand and grow. This is why the color of Islam is green. It's always in perpetual springtime and always growing. Yeah, the um, the way that they have hoodwinked the Western society is amazing. Because uh, I have a friend of mine, and her son now happens to be a Marine. Uh, she was wooed when she was living in Paris by a Muslim. Uh, he ended up 
conning her into going to Lebanon, which was where he was from, held her captive. And when her son was born, um, kept them there in captivity. She was able to finally escape, come back to the United States, and she's happily married to a former Marine. Her son is now a Marine, but even to this day, he still fights to get custody of the son, even though he's an adult male with a family of his own. So this is not something that's been going on for the last few years. This has been going on throughout the history of Islam and part of the jihad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what I show in the book, that all these behaviors that a lot of people think are something that ISIS invented or, or, or Al-Qaeda and they are newly minted, they actually have been going on since the beginning of Islam, and there's nothing new about them at all. You know, it's, um, it's amazing because we turn a blind eye. We tend to think the best of people. But in Islam, you better look for the worst of people before you look for the best of them in there. Otherwise, you're going to turn a blind eye to what the truth of Islam is. And that's one of the things you expose on your website. There was an article recently in World Net Daily, and I was reading it, and I don't realize that the, I don't know if the author realized what he did and said in the article. It was about a Muslim human rights advocate who now claims Presbyterians are extreme. Uh, this individual, uh, Bassam Iyad, had attended the Presbyterian Church USA meeting, and he was there to argue for a resolution that sought to condemn Hamas for militarizing the Palestine children of Gaza Strip. Now, the Palestinian Church voted down that resolution, which in itself is amazing. Uh, But then there's someone in the crowd that turned around, stood up, happened to be a fellow Palestinian, said that, I know who you are, I'm going to kill you, and then followed him and said in Arabic that he will kill me, that I'm a traitor and a Zionist collaborator. Yet this person, Bassam Iyad, was claiming it was the Presbyterians doing it, when it seems to be a fellow Palestinian, a fellow Muslim that was doing this. Even in WorldNet Daily, they cannot get that correct. Well, uh, Bassam Iyad was at the uh, Presbyterian meeting, and the guy who threatened him was also there. And so you got to wonder, you know, are the Presbyterians uh, condoning this? Do they care about it? If they're already so uh, divorced from reality that they are condemning Israel for these Hamas operatives who attacked Israel being killed, uh, then it's, uh, it's, it's, it's highly questionable at the very least. And so I think that there's um, – cause to be very, very concerned about the leftist Christians and how they are aiding in the, in the jihad cause. And, you know, why was this guy at this meeting in the first place? Why is he running around freely and feeling so free as to be able to threaten this uh, Basami, the anti-Hamas speaker? And uh, World Net Daily picked up on that. I think that's uh, – personally, I don't have a problem with that myself. Well, what I found funny is that he's saying that Presbyterians were extremists, and yet he had a fellow Palestinian going after him instead of saying, hey, not only the Presbyterians off the wall for not endorsing this resolution, but you're allowing a Muslim to come in and threaten me. That's what I think they lost it in the article. They missed that point, I think. All right. Well, I haven't seen that one. I reported it at Jihad Watch, but I didn't get it from World Net Daily. (laughs) 
Oh, I've got to check all sources, I guess, sometimes. But, you know, it, it's funny because my own church is in a battle because I happen to belong to, which originally was Episcopal, part of, member of the Episcopal, Anglican, and we are in a fight for our life right now uh, because the Episcopal Church has gone so far left, we've broken away. Now they're trying to take all of our property so that we can no longer physically exist, just emotionally exist. We'd have to look for a new place to worship. And the bishop that's heading this fight said publicly, I'd rather see your church, which, is, which has existed since 1712, become a mosque than remain yeah. in the Anglican church. That is how bad it has become here in the United States, and people are not waking up yet. This is true. It's all over the world. There, were re- there was recently a bishop in Italy who said that he was so committed to the cause of the mass immigration of Muslims into Europe that he was ready to turn all the churches into mosques. That's scary. That is scary. <laughs> yeah, it's insane at <laughs> the very least. Because if you recall, uh, a number of years ago, an imam had a uh, a service, a call to Islam on a Friday service inside the, Epis- the National Episcopal Church in D.C. And they were completely unaware that if you do that, they are claiming that church as their ground to be conquered, to be taken. It's, it's an open yes. call to say, hey, listen, once we have stepped our feet here, this is now our property. Yep. That's it. <laughs> and how can people be that blind, Robert? Really? How can they honestly be that blind? Well, there's been a concerted effort for decades now to obfuscate the truth about the uh, jihad threat. When you read newspaper articles about jihad attacks, many times the motivating ideology is obscured. The uh, the people who are attacking, even if they're screaming Allahu Akbar and making it very clear what they're all about, they are uh, called militants or insurgents or in Nigeria herdsmen, and you don't hear about what they're really all about and what their uh, what their motives and goals really were, and so you're not going to get a clear idea of what's going on. And then if you this having been done over all these years, decades now. Most Americans are ignorant and complacent regarding the jihad threat, and they don't really have any idea that it's going on or the nature and magnitude of it. Robert. Well, we have a question that popped up. Oh, we got a question that popped up twice in the chat room, Curtis, because I want to get this. Because Vito asked it and Kayla asked it also. Banned from traveling into the UK. Yeah, um, I still am. I think it's for life. Uh, we appealed and lost the appeal, and. The uh, thing is that the British government has let in a large number of jihad preachers and even people, the, the jihadis from ISIS who, were com- who came from Britain. They were admitted back in. The British government has admitted that 150 or so ISIS jihadis are walking around free on the streets in Britain today. And this is because they are English citizens or British citizens. And so it was not considered possible to keep them out. And I think, well, this is insane. ISIS is an entity that is at war, avowedly, openly, explicitly at war with Britain. And so imagine if you had a group of British Nazis and they left Britain and went to Nazi Germany in 1935. And then in 1940, they wanted to come back. 
would they have been admitted back in? Maybe only to come back to a British prison, but the idea that they could be just walking around loose when they are essentially enemy combatants, everybody would have thought that insane. And modern-day Britain is insane, and so it doesn't really bother me that on band the British government is a lengthening record of people that banned even of three bishops from Iraq from areas where Christians were persecuted were not allowed to get into Britain. And apparently they had said some things critical of Islam, and that's not allowed in Britain anymore. And there were several other people. Of course, Pamela Geller was banned with me, and several other people have been banned since then. Whereas all these people with hair-raising uh, jihad preaching, they get in with no problem. There was a fellow, Muhammad al-Arifi, who right around the same time we were banned, as a matter of fact, he was preach- he, he was led into the country, even though he was famous for preaching that jihad was the smashing of skulls and the spilling the blood of the unbelievers. But that's okay with the British authorities. We were against jihad, and uh, he was for it. And I guess you have to be for it to get into Britain nowadays. Oh, Curtis, go ahead with your question. I got to tell you, the chat room is just lighting up right now because <laughs> I've got us up on Facebook and YouTube doing the video there. So they're, they have a rolling screen of your face in one of your books. Uh, so you're live on video right now. But the chat room is absolutely going nuts. Curtis, go ahead with your question. Yes, yeah, seems as though we have Al Qaeda and ISIS, Boko Haram, and Al Shabaab on the run. But I still have a sense, this feeling that something big could happen anytime. Or is that possible now that we degrade them to the point where they no longer can um, attack us in a, a big, spectacular way? What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, they could very much attack. They could mount a spectacular attack anytime. They're certainly drastically weakened, and President Trump has rolled up ISIS in an amazing manner over the last year and a half. But the possibility of them attacking in the West is perhaps even stronger than it was because a lot of these guys who were hanging around in Iraq and Syria are now dispersed, and a lot of them have come back to the United States as well as to Britain and to Western Europe. And they haven't changed their minds about anything. They'll just be looking to kill people here. So I think we're going to be, unfortunately, hearing from ISIS for quite a while to come. It's uh, claimed to be the caliphate, is unfortunately still lives. Yeah, it's it, it's crazy out there, but there's there is some hope, some glimmering light that maybe people are starting to get it because Ron DeSantis, Congressman DeSantis, had hearings recently, and it called for the designation of the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. It, it yeah, hasn't passed officially yet. It. it it's going to be down the road somewhere along the way. And I'd like to see not just the Muslim Brotherhood, but CARE and all of its other finger organizations, which are out there, are now numbering in the thousands, including the Muslim, uh, what is that one with the Muslim Students of America, getting all of these officially banned. Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The, the older I get, the more I get brain parts. <laughs> they're very, they're like, a very dangerous group. A lot of jihadis have come out of the MSAs, and yet on campuses, they're considered to be just like another uh, religious student group, you know, like Hillel or uh, the Catholic uh, students, I forget, oh, Newman Center, you know, these kind of things. Uh, People and uh, the colleges universally consider the uh, Muslim Students Association to be in the same category. 
whereas they are not remotely in the same category, and as a matter of fact are uh, a very insidious group. Many, many jihad preachers have been featured by MSAs around the country, and there are jihadis. Anwar al-Laki was in the MSA and a lot of other jihadis. And so it's not a benign group, and it's a shame that it is considered to be such on campuses all over. You know, they, they stifle the free speech of someone like yourself or me, people that are conservative, whatever you want to call us, you know, on the right. Uh, but yet they give free reign to such radicalism, such violence. And when we see this rise of the violence with the Antifa and other, other organizations, I think mainstream America, those of us that are the heart and grassroots of America, are going to end up finally, in the end, rising up against him. I'm starting to see it turn now. I think it's under the Trump administration that was giving us free reign to say enough is enough. This has got to stop. Do you see the same thing I'm seeing? Do you see some hope here? No, oh, sure. Well, look, the election of Trump is a sign of hope that people were uh, becoming aware of the dangerous path we were on and also the Brexit vote in Britain is a sign of hope. The fact that in Hungary, the Czech Republic, Poland, and a few other countries in Central Europe, they are not going to take any more Muslim migrants and are against the whole enterprise of the uh, mass Muslim migration into Europe. These are all signs that people are waking up, and there are more. Well, we're also seeing a turn in Germany, too, which is, <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen. Uh, but you're starting to see the German people saying, wait a minute, we are no longer true Germans. You're making us more of a Muslim nation. It's the rise of a new caliphate we see coming in Europe. And they're almost conquered unless they start turning the page. Yes, indeed. Germany, it's a, it's a strange situation because... Uh, Merkel has been now elected to four terms and has three years, over three years to go in her uh, chancellorship. And so you, she's been the one primarily responsible for this mass Muslim migration. And you have to wonder, why is it that the Germans are voting against their own national survival and self-interest? And part of it, of course, is there again, that they're not being told the truth. And so they don't know how bad the situation really is. Uh, recently, there was a Muslim migrant who beheaded his one-year-old daughter on a train station platform and uh, the uh, Merkel government actually put out a gag order on the press. They would allow the press to talk about the murder of the mother who he also killed, but not the little girl. It was as if they wanted to make sure that the full barbarism of what's happening was not really fully known. And this is the problem that the few, the, as long as people don't know what's going on, then there's nothing they can do to fix it. And this is the situation that all too much of Europe, as well as North America, is in. Well, I find it funny because in, in this day and age of the Internet and the social media, how do they expect to have something like this stifled? It's almost impossible. You would have to shut down all avenues of communication. This is not 1932 Germany where they can do this. In this day and age, if the information is out there, you somehow or other, you have access to it. Well, the problem is that the uh, 
Internet has blown their game wide open and made it so that the truth can be disseminated outside of the mainstream media. And so this is why we see the ongoing attempts and increasing attempts to control the, uh, the Internet. And that is something that's extremely ominous. I have seen the uh, traffic to my own website, Jihad Watch, drop off significantly because referrals from Facebook dropped off significantly last year and never recovered. And this is because Facebook, which is the primary way that people get their news today, is manipulating its data results, its search results, uh, and its news filters and feeds and all these things so that you, don't, you only see what they want you to see. And they don't want you to see the news that I report on. And so this is uh, – uh, it's a very serious problem that could get worse. And people, I think, for the most part, don't realize how bad the efforts are at censorship. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I see my own websites, you know, being manipulated too, and seeing different numbers coming up on them. It was very interesting. I, I never equated it to Facebook manipulation, but thank you for giving me the heads up on that. Go ahead, Curtis. We are seeing more Muslims being sworn into public office um, using the Quran. How slippery a slope is this um, when it comes to to that person's um, allegiance? Well, you know, in the first place, a lot of people say, oh, no, it's racism and bigotry. It's terrible if you oppose this because uh, it's just like people getting sworn in on the Bible. Well, the thing is, is that the Bible, the, the country was founded in a Christian context. And this is not to say, I don't want to get into the, uh, the debates about whether this was founded as a Christian nation and so on. Uh, the, the fact is, though, that most of the people involved were Christians and to swear on the Bible was taken for granted as part of the cultural and historical context of the United States. Uh, to swear in on anything else is to bring in an element that was not there at the beginning. And especially when it comes to Islam and the Quran, you're talking about swearing in on a book that has incited people to commit appalling acts of violence against the United States. And so you've got to wonder, well, would you allow, once you allow for any book, or once you allow for the swearing in on books other than the Bible, then what is it going to stop with? Uh, what if somebody wants to get sworn in on Mein Kampf? What if somebody wants to get sworn in on Dr. Seuss? Uh, there's nothing wrong with Dr. Seuss. I'm just trying to illustrate the idea that there's a problem when you start saying that any book is okay. And then when you, when you do open it up, you have to start looking at what is in the books. And the Quran does have this sharp dichotomy between believers and unbelievers and the believers are favored the unbelievers are not you have the idea in uh, the Quran Muhammad is the apostle of Allah those who follow him are merciful to one another but ruthless to the unbelievers and that being the case uh, that's not really the kind of idea that we want to have encouraged in the United States. It's not the idea of equality of rights of all people before the law. And the Quran denies the, the Quran and Islamic tradition deny the freedom of speech and the freedom of conscience and the, uh, uh, the equality of rights of women with men and so on. And so you're going to have somebody swearing in on that. That's against very important principles of the United States. And the counter-argument, of course, that people will say is that, oh, yes, but the Bible is full of all sorts of things that are against the principles of the United States. But here again, the people who founded 
the country and started this whole idea of the uh, swearing in on the Bible, they didn't think there was any incompatibility there with, how they, how, with the Bible as they understood it. And it was part of their cultural context. You're going to bring something else in, then you've got to open up the question about the content of the book. And that, I think, raises some very important questions about the Quran. It's, I'm, I'm trying to follow what's going on in the chat room because, uh, oh, we, we've got a couple of clans in here. One of them, a little tongue-in-cheek, he's saying, uh, our friend Vito Esposito, who has his own radio show, Mamma Mia No Sharia, uh, said, come on, Robert, you know those two terrorizing are the ones perverting the religion of peace. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, I guess yeah, I wrote this book, The History of Jihad, weird... and it's all about that, really. The, the history of jihad is all about how the, uh, the jihadis have been operating throughout history. It's not a new thing, and they have uh, always behaved in this way that they are behaving now, that the jihad has been a constant throughout nations, throughout uh, uh, through centuries. It's always been the same. A lot of people think, that there were periods of tolerance and peace. This book shows that none of that is true and that we need to recognize that the jihad has been a constant of Islamic history because we're going to be dealing with it whether we recognize it or not. And the more we know about what we're up against, the better we will be able to deal with it. Well, it's funny because we look throughout history on who the Muslims have partnered with throughout history and it comes back to the one new world order. Now, the, the, the purpose of Islam is to make a world caliphate, a one new world order. And we have these people who are socialists, uh, communists, all looking for a new world order, a one world order. And throughout history, you find that Muslims have always partnered with those who aim for a new world order. They did it with Germany in World War One and Germany in World War Two. We find Russia had partnered with Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood, training them, indoctrinating them. And what you have now under Putin, we see he invaded Crimea using Chechen that were Muslim, yelling in their marches, Alu Akbar. We see it constantly. So people talk about the new world order in the end, are actually supporting the caliphate without realizing it? Or do they realize it? Oh, I think that they do. I think that the international left thinks that they can use the forces of jihad for their own purposes. They both hate America. They both hate Western civilization, Judeo-Christian civilization. So they think that they can work together, that they can use their mutual hatred, and then the leftists, I believe, think that they will be able to cast off these religious fanatics and rule the world. And they misunderstand the power of the religious impulse. I would just point out that Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran had uh, communist allies, and they all thought the same thing, that they would be able to use this old fanatic and then throw him away. And it was they who ended up being uh, tried, jailed, executed and Khomeini consolidated his power. I suspect that if the left is victorious in the United States uh, with the aid of its Muslim allies, it will be much the same thing. 
Well, now that brings me around to my question, because Trump sat down with Putin yesterday, which was widely reported, and they were talking about combating terrorism together. And yet Putin has been consistently linked to terrorist activities, either through his funding or training of them in in Russia, formerly the communist uh, USSR. Um, can we trust Putin to actually follow through on his promise to combat terrorism? Or are we just looking to have another bag pulled over our head? No, we can't trust him, but we can verify. You know, you remember Ronald Reagan saying, trust but verify. And there's no doubt that Putin faces the same jihad threat in the south of Russia that the United States faces. And so there isn't any reason why there couldn't be some mutual uh, cooperation in that regard. Like the president said yesterday, pointing out that the American intelligence had helped the Russians thwart a jihad terror attack uh, some months ago. And uh, the Russians actually, he didn't mention, but the Russians tipped us off about the Tsarnaev brothers who were uh, the people who bombed the Boston Marathon. He might not have mentioned it because, of course, that wasn't a success on our part. The uh, uh, bombing happened, but it happened because the FBI failed to follow through on the uh, intelligence it received from the Russians. It wasn't the Russians' fault. And so you have both sides helping out the other to fight terrorism. I don't know why that couldn't continue. Robert. What I find – all right, I'm sorry, Curtis. What I was finding strange is that still Putin still uses these Muslim Chetnian troops. Oh, well – yeah, he's got uh, Chechnya is a part of Russia, and so they. I, I I don't know what you're talking about in specific about the troops, but I'm sure he does have Chechens among the uh, in the Russian army, and of course he's aiding Iran, which I think is a very serious thing that Trump did mention yesterday. That uh, will need to end if he's really going to be serious about combating jihad terror. But as I say, we shouldn't trust him anyway. We should just uh, uh, make use of what we can in terms of any cooperation from them, and we can aid them also in fighting against jihad terror. That doesn't mean any uh, compromise of our essential principles or of our national security apparatus. Go ahead, Curtis. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it seems like uh, most Americans do not look um, at the United States being in a state of war, you know, with terrorism. Um, but we still have soldiers over there fighting, um, especially in Afghanistan and north, um, northern Africa. My problem I have with this in Afghanistan is that we still have um, some of our soldiers being shot in the back of the head by the very people we're supposed to be helping. What are your thoughts on thing. how we can, um, yeah, how can we um, approach this problem, you know, I know they don't want our guys, you know, carrying weapons in certain areas so we don't offend them. And we certainly don't want them to feel offended if we ask their soldiers not to carry weapons. But can we really continue to take that risk of our guys being shot in the back of the head? I mean, a couple of years ago, they shot a general. Yeah, a few years back, that was the rule that American soldiers would not have weapons in the presence of the Afghan soldiers that they were training. And after a few Americans got killed, 
by their trainees, then this was reversed. And that's all to the good. But still, uh, the nature of the case, American soldiers are put into harm's way all, far too often. And the problem is that there is no way to tell who they're dealing with. And this is what nobody wants to acknowledge. There is, uh, in the Afghan army, there's any number of jihadis, and there's no way to distinguish them from Muslims who are actually our allies. And so we really shouldn't even be playing this game at all. It's self-defeating. There's no way that Afghanistan is ever going to become some sort of a Western-style secular republic. And so we got to wonder what we're doing there and why we're still there and why. Uh, because especially in light of the fact that the Taliban is just going to take over as soon as we're gone, we can't stay there forever. At a certain point, we're going to have to go and then the Taliban will take over. And so we should be preparing for that eventuality and dealing with it and trying to isolate and contain the Taliban rather than trying to uh, uh, continue to put our, rather than continuing to put our soldiers in harm's way there. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually for uh, a withdrawal from that area and a complete reevaluation of the strategy that we have taken regarding the uh, uh, regarding the threat in Afghanistan, I think there are many more effective ways to deal with it than by having our troops on the ground. Well, it's going to be interesting you know, as we move forward, you know, because we have people from the left calling for the abolishment of ICE, which was a form of the INS. They're saying ICE was only formed just a few years ago when the Department of Homeland. No, ICE was originally INS, and they worked pretty damn well. But, you know, there's so much more I could be speaking with you because I, I have yet to find the article that was done back in the late 90s. It was either 98 or 99, and I forget if it was Time or Newsweek, where they talked about the crossing of the borders other than Mexicans back then. They were reporting yes. on finding the Quran and prayer mats at the southern border being abandoned Indeed. in the desert as we had jihadis coming, of course, back then. And Lord knows how many decades they've been coming through. And we have the left asking for open borders. Holy moly, why don't you just let the, the enemy into your very living room? Sit down. Hey, yeah. watch Sling TV together. Let's, let's have a little hummus together. Come on. That's astonishing, yes. Anyway, I, uh, uh, I, I'm afraid I'm out of time. I have go to ahead, go. Don't. I have another another one at three. So uh, it's been very nice well, chatting with you next, all. Well, What's Robert, we have our next guest up. We have our next guest up on the bullpen. So thank you for joining us. Your new book Excellent. is coming out on August seventh. Uh, it's called Available History of Jihad from Muhammad. Yeah, and people can pre-order it by going to your website, Jihad Watch, and there's a link up on the show page. So when people listen to the podcast later on, they click on it, they go to your page, they buy your book. Thanks so much. All right, Robert Spencer. Hey, it was great talking to you, uh, God Robert. bless for all, all the great work he does. Oh, man. What, I, I wish we had more time to speak with him. There's so much more to talk about. But we got got to have our next victim up on the line. So let's welcome aboard John Tamney. Good afternoon, John. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, man. Um, I, I was speed reading through your book last night, and I have to apologize because I had cataract surgery in both of my eyes. So it, I had to flash through it last night when I was able to finally <laughs> sit down and read. 
Uh, but your new book is The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. And I found it fascinating uh, because a lot of things that you wrote about it, uh, I did in my life. If I was not happy in a job, I got out of it and I looked for something that I was happy in. You know, that's, that's the greatest thing about America. We can do that. You don't have to be stuck in a rut. Yeah, it's it's what we what, probably the greatest but least sung aspect of the United States that that you obviously hit on is that we're mobile. We live in a country in which if we don't like where we are, we've got 50 different states and thousands of cities to go find better opportunity. There are no barriers to it. No one's saying you've got to pay a toll to get here. You can just go to where to the situation that most elevates your skills. And so that alone speaks to the genius of opportunity here. And then as I point out in the book, it's more and more the case that people can turn what they're interested in into a lifelong hobby, a lifelong work. The hobbies can become work. You know, that is that is so very, very true. And I have to apologize. I have to get my notes from Robert Spencer out of the way so I can get my notes to you in <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I am so discombobulated today. Uh, anyway, um, you are a prolific writer because you started off, and I was, I was reading your biology, your, your, your biography, biology, biography in your book as how you morphed into what you do today, where at such a young age, you were writing um, policy papers, and people were following you. Here you are, a kid of 20, 22, 24, 25 writing policy papers that are reading. Yeah, well, I was certainly writing them. What, what's always unknown is who, all, who was reading them, but it, I, it get, that's what got me on the path that I was on. Uh, my passion was always writing about economics and economic policy, although I was doing different jobs. And so, but it just, this is what really is something I, certainly a signal, something that I did on my own. Uh, that I just wanted to do, and so probably signaled that that was the right path for me. And so in my case, um, during a major downturn for the markets in the uh, in the early 2000s, Goldman Sachs went through mass layoffs, and I was one of the victims of it. But it turned out to be somewhat of a blessing in disguise, and it, um, it 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 pushed me in the direction of finally getting into what I'm into now, which is. Um, I'm a voracious reader and writer about all things economic. Well, it's funny because I always say God has a purpose, and it's only up to us to listen to what it was. Because back in the late 70s, early 80s, I owned a travel agency. And, you know, after a while, my partner was not willing to expand and go into areas that I saw the travel industry going, heading more away from vacation travel because it was starting the rise of, you know, people. Uh, home computers weren't prevalent at that time, but I saw a tendency where more and more people were going away from going to a, a vacation travel agent and more of us doing more business travel. So I was aiming in that direction, aiming to computerize the uh, business and automate a lot of it to free us up to handle the customer. Uh, and my partner wasn't willing to do that. So after a number of years, I said, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here. I got to go where my talent's are, are worthwhile. And that's what people don't do. They remain stuck with that mindset that I can't do better. 
But yet again, the beauty of the America is that we have the opportunity to try, not necessarily to succeed, but to try. Yeah, you know, you're so right. And I would just I would add to that that uh, happiness is hard. Um, my take, in the, as I argue in the book, is that happiness springs from hard work. Uh, people, Warren Buffett could write the both of us a check and we would never have to work, us, work again. Government could write us a check since so we would never have to work, but they couldn't give us happiness. And I think it comes from – I think the happiest people are, are people who work hard, who love what they do. Now, the challenge, of course, is finding a career path in life that elevates your unique skills and intelligence. But we thankfully live in a time and a place in which more and more people can do that. And that's what the book shows, that people who love what I consider the very cerebral game that is football, they can make a lifelong career about it. If it's food, if it's wine, if it's video games, if it's pets, the the, the ways in which people can earn a living today, it's just staggering. And so you have to try and you have to be willing to fail, but that's the path to a lot of happiness if you're willing to do it. Well, you also say it's not just you know for happiness; it's ad- adventure. Look at it as an adventure. You know, uh, one of the things um, at one point, uh, my first husband was a marine, and he was trying to get me a job uh, inside the government building there, and I was questioning people about you know what they did. And they said, well, you know, we just sit here, we do our job, we're in our little cubicle, we don't try to beyond do anything beyond. He says, don't you try to do anything where your job becomes more efficient or see a way that you can make it better for the company that you're working for? And the answer was resoundingly no. And I told my husband, I don't want to be put placed in a job where I can't help my boss function better. I'm always looking for something to improve, something to do better. But that's a lot of people are just happy to be that cog. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. My one minor quibble is I wonder if they're happy. I really do believe happiness springs from hard work, and what you're describing is people just getting doing what they need to do to get the job done. And I, and I, you know, I, I just I feel like people know when they're not giving it their all, and they know it because. They may be able to trick others, but they can't trick themselves. Uh, now, let me be clear about this. This is not me saying that you've just got to learn to work hard. You've got to convince yourself or you've got to show grit. I think grit is one of the biggest lies ever foisted on the American worker. We're the richest country on earth precisely because we avoid grit. LeBron James avoided what didn't elevate his intelligence and focused on what did. So did Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett once said, if if sports had been my only option, I would have been a failure. In the United (laughs) States, we have the option to find what elevates what's unique about us and turn it into a career. And that's the path to hard work because when you're doing something that elevates you, your capacity for work explodes. And so I think that's the happiness. I think what you're describing – one of the shames about government is that it, precisely as you indicate is it can write us a check, but it can't give us a lot of fulfillment simply because people are just trying to get by in government. They're not trying to innovate, or, 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 and, they, and, they, and they're not required to. Yeah, that's the thing. There are people that are going to be lazy. That we have to admit. But there are also a lot of us that want to become something better in life. 
And uh, there was one point in time I was between jobs. I was going to college, and I was working two at one point three jobs to, to pay for my college. And I ended up working in a factory. And oh, good lord! I don't know how people could do the drudge work in a factory, but that lasted just a couple of weeks because as soon as I saw I hated that job, I immediately started looking for something different. And that's another thing you talk about in your book, which happened to you. You were in a job that you didn't like. Your boss was a jerk. But there's always something out there better to strive for. Yeah, and, you know, that that wasn't always the case. What, what I think people forget when they complain about the United States is that 150 years ago, if you were born here, you kind of had one of two options. Uh, you were going to either going to work on the farm – or work on something related to it. It didn't matter if you loved it or hated it. All human effort was directed toward the farm. And so imagine the misery with that. Imagine the endless having to get up six days a week, dawn to dusk, doing something that you don't enjoy. But if, if that's the path of survival, so a lot of people did. A lot of people starved. And so I, when you talk about um, factory work, it kind of reminds me, I'm sure we could find history books where farmers, where politicians were saying back in the early 20th century, we're going to bring back the farm jobs. Because thankfully, automation, the tractor, fertilizer, freed us from the drudgery of farm work. And technology has since freed the vast majority of Americans from factory work. And as you point out, or you allude to, politicians romanticize it. It was never that great. There's a reason that factory workers frequently tell their kids get get out of town as in we're working in these in this situation so that you don't have to and again i just i i think your the broad point here is that thanks to constant automation thanks to immense prosperity americans have the freedom to avoid the work that we had no choice but to do in the past and what an exciting statement about the country we are well you also talk about um education and I love saying this because you can be street smart and book dumb, but then again, you can be book smart and street. Uh, I got some family members that tout their education and they look down their noses at someone like myself that had only just a business associate degree. You know, I'm, I'm one of the peons, you know, I was one of those that, you know, was a worker, um, I was not one of the elite, but because you have that higher education doesn't mean that you're going to succeed. Some of the greatest successes were people that, that couldn't read or write, couldn't uh, read a sheet of music and yet became world famous musicians. People that came out of nowhere and became millionaires because of the, the smarts they, they had. Oh, without question. Let's be clear here that education is almost irrelevant. If you're going to succeed, you don't need education to do that. And if you've got lots of education, as we both know, it's not necessarily the path to success. There's just a lot of really hopeless, hopelessly well-educated people out there. And you touched on music, and, and that's in my chapter about um, education where I say it's not that important. I point to the Beach Boys. Brian Wilson is broadly viewed as one of the greatest musical minds in the history of, of man. No formal musical training. Uh, the Beatles, uh, 
aren't the biggest hit makers in history. None of them could read a note of music. If you look in modern times, John Cougar or John Mellencamp, he goes by now, um, he's never read a, a note of music. Uh, what's important to prosperity and the ability to thrive is freedom to do so. You put it well, the right to try. Uh, that's that's what's important. Uh, teaching teachers almost by definition are teaching you yesterday's news. If they could prepare you for the work of the future, they wouldn't be working at universities. They'd be earning many multiples of what they are in the real world. And um, what we've bought into this notion that education is important, and and and, the, and we judge people based on it. And, and I think how unfortunate it's not a driver of wealth. Let's look at China. China is one of the least educated countries on earth, but it's rapidly developing into one of the most prosperous in time it will be. What its people needed was economic freedom. The U.S. has the greatest universities in the world, but they didn't make us the richest nation in, in, in the world. We are the richest nation. We have the greatest universities because we're the richest nation. People with lots of money like to give it away to schools because they like to, to send their kids to fancy schools. Nothing wrong with that, but let's not delude ourselves and presume that anything taught in schools has any relevance to the real world. I, I don't think that's true. If you, if you need to learn stuff, you can learn it on your own. You know, there's something else you point out in the book, you know, uh, being someone that seeks knowledge. uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, because like you, I'm someone that, you know, goes through the newspaper, reads the headlines, looks at the stories, looks at all sides of an issue before I open my big mouth. (laughs) Not all the time, but most of the time. Um, But that hunger for knowledge, not necessarily, you know, higher education but just looking around what's going on around you today and it's it's funny because we did a, a, a project when i was in high school so many decades ago um where you picked out certain stocks and i i sat back and i watched everyone picking the stocks around them and i just went to the newspaper and read what was going on in the news and i said well what is it that's an everyday item that I know people are going to want. What is it that I know that's going to be in the front of the news? It's something that's going to be important. And out of all the stocks I picked was Gillette. And while I watched all of my classmates, their stocks bomb, Gillette was steadily climbing higher. And it's, it's amazing if, if you just simply look at what's going on around you, following the news, how it can actually benefit your life and make things better for you. Yeah, um, you know, let's be clear that uh, uh, what they, what anything they could teach you about how to follow stocks in school, would almost by definition be worthless. There's, there's just this desire, there's this feeling that you can learn from books what realistically only street smarts can teach you, and 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 I think what you're alluding to, and and what I certainly believe is that if professors at, at, at elite schools really had a clue about the future and really could prepare you for give you any impart any skills to you about the future they wouldn't be doing what they're doing it, it's not to knock colleges and universities I, I argue in the book it's something that people should do if they want to do it but I don't but don't be foolish and, and presume that you're learning skills that have any relevance to real the real world there's lots of reasons to go to school but preparing yourself for the jobs of the future is not one of them. Well, yeah. the funny thing is, is today in today's world, we are advancing so fast. 
I've never seen advancements as fast as this. And if you think about the history of our nation, how long it took us to go from an agricultural uh, society to then a manufacturing society into now in the last, I would say, not even 50 years, the last 20 years, how fast we have advanced technologically. It, we're at a, such an amazing step. I don't know if we can mentally keep up with it, but we have a set of youth coming up. First it was the millennials. Now it's those that are after the millennials that are able to uh, monopolize this technology and become instant millionaires. Yeah, no, I think I think you just put it well. Um, this is this for one discredits this notion that education is all important because precisely as you say, technology is rather, is is developing so fast. Almost by definition, anything we're learning in schools isn't of of, of any importance. It's it's almost irrelevant. And then looking at the young people, I devote a chapter to it. I say that the millennials will be the richest generation in the history of the richest nation in the history of the world until the generation that, that follows them eclipses them. And the reason for it is basic. While you and I look at this technology and say, wow, it's developing fast, to young people, this is all they've ever known. So they understand technology best. In, in the end of work, I talk about Kylie Jenner. Uh, no college education early. She's just now in her early 20s. So when I wrote the book, early, younger than that, she billed uh, $420 million in her second year in business. And her insight was that I've got all these followers on Instagram. Um, I can market uh, makeup cosmetics um, to them th- through this Instagram. And so she's built – a business that Forbes conservatively values at $800 million that she owns 100% of, 12 employees, uh, seven full-time, five part-time, and uh, she outsources the manufacturer, the sales and everything. But this is what the young people have on the rest of us. They know this technology intimately, and they know how to use it to connect people in ways that maybe older people don't. And so the future is really exciting simply because the young kids probably haven't yet scratched the surface of their potential. But, you know, if Kylie Jenner, I don't, she's obviously no dummy, but I think it'll be lots and lots of people like her who harness this technology and totally transform how we live. It's, it's, it's really exciting to think about the future. Now we have a question in the chat room from our friend, Kel. Is she one of the Bruce Jenner family members? She most certainly is. She is the last. She is the last uh, daughter, or you know, the the, the, the youngest, youngest daughter. Yeah. yeah. John. And uh, just to show you how much I follow that stuff, Curtis, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if you ever heard this term before, <clears throat> called voodoo economics. If you have heard of it, where did it come from, and what does it mean? Uh, voodoo economics. I think it was penned by someone else, but it was most famously uttered by George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush's father, um, in a debate with Ronald Reagan in 1980. Uh, Ronald Reagan was talking up uh, the economic good of tax cuts um, and, among other things, said that the tax cuts wouldn't lead to lower government revenue simply because the resulting economic growth 
would would generate a lot of taxable wealth. Well, George H.W. Bush referred to Reagan's theories on taxes as voodoo economics. Um, he subsequently re- retracted them in later years um, after having at least publicly believed that, that Reagan's um, economic program worked and worked very well. But he was the originator of it. It, it, was, a, it was a critique of Reagan's tax plan. Okay, thanks. <laughs> now, you, you write extensively for Real Clear Markets, which is a spinoff of Real Clear Politics. You're the editor-in-chief over there. And um, what does Real Clear Markets actually do? Well, what we do is we produce a lot of original content. Um, I produce uh, probably the, the the most of the original content, and then I'm a pretty voracious writer, but we uh, commentary on the markets and the economy. And so it's original content, plus we put pull together commentary on the economy uh, from newspapers and magazines and websites from around the world. And what we're trying to do is for the market economy interested reader, we're trying to save this person from all the work of compiling all this different information, all these different opinions. We want to put it in one place for them. And one of the things that we really try to do is we try to find two sides to every issue. If someone's saying cut taxes right now because it will have an amazing impact on the economy, in a perfect world we can find something uh, commentary that will maybe argue a different point of view on it. So we're, we're trying to give people well-rounded information um, and also save them enormous amounts of time from finding it themselves. Well, yeah. You know, how do you how do you get both sides of the issue? Then you know, do you have some sort of a criteria? Uh, do you have certain places that you go to? Yeah. How do you have your staff do that? Well, you know, it's. Sometimes it's just luck uh, on a day when someone says it's time to put up uh, tariffs on China. There will be an op- in let's just say at Bloomberg there will be at the New York Times an op-ed saying that would be a terrible idea. So you can combine the two, um, but uh, you know more broadly, you just you have a sense of where things are. Uh, I've been doing this every day for the most part. Uh, since 2007, and so you develop a good sense of where there's going to be opinion on these things uh, when certain writers are publishing, and so you ideally can put together a fairly credible combination of ideas. Now, you just mentioned tariffs, and that's a hot topic right now because uh, Trump has been threatening tariffs. He's been using it as a negotiation tool, and you recently wrote an article about there's never an excuse for protectionism, so stop excusing it. Um, well, my opinion is is that it's a good negotiating tool. Originally, it was where the Constitution has it where Congress, the legislator, had the right to issue tariffs, and that was only after debate and a vote. Uh, in 1964, they issued the act that gave the, the power to the president where he could use it. Uh, and now there is a legislation going forward uh, by my congressman, Mark Sanford, uh, who sponsors it, to take that power back to Congress. Now, where do you stand on this issue of Trump using tariffs? Um, I think it's a horrible idea. Um, think about it. He has a problem that China and other countries 
have have put tariffs or taxes on U.S. exports. Okay, but by definition, these governments are injuring their people because an economy is just people. It's just individuals, and individuals are much better off the more they have people around the world competing to serve their needs. It just means they get more in return for their work. The only reason we're working is to import. It could be from across the street. It could be from the other side of the world, but we're working to get things, and so tariffs – injure every single American worker on the naive supposition that they can help very few workers by protecting a certain business at the expense of everyone. And then I would add that tariffs are injurious because they slow the rapid division of labor, which that is what enables us to specialize. When we can divide up work with a bigger number of people, we have much better better odds of doing the work that most elevates our unique skills. And as a result, we get we're much more productive. And so isn't it odd that President Trump, mad at what China's doing to its citizens, wants to injure the American people in response? It strikes me that the better answer is we're not going to injure our people. We're going to show the bad of your tariffs by lowering them here because you're not helping your people. You're not helping your economy, and we're going to help our people by – Getting rid of tariffs, and hopefully you'll learn from our example that this is just getting it backwards. We're going to injure our people because you're injuring your people. So terrible idea in my mind. Well, you know, when when they look at some of the uh, previous presidents and their statements in reference to tariffs, um, a lot of them were saying it's necessary to protect us, our, our our nation, ourselves, not just economically but militarily. And if you look at the histories of tariffs throughout the United States, when they were at their highest back during the War of 1812, it gave growth to American industry. Manufacturing began to explode because we couldn't import things because of tariffs. We became more self-sufficient. So would that not mean that we are now protecting American industries or encouraging American industry to innovate by placing tariffs on imports? By saying, all right, no. China, and I'll use that as a perfect example because China, any any major business in China is government-owned in essence. You may say, well, supposedly they're saying it's privately owned, but in truth, it ends up being a government entity because a member of that government, that Politburo, has their finger in the pie. Well, but based on that, you could say that all, all of American businesses are government-owned too because government takes a substantial portion uh, of profits here too. I also don't think I don't I think that's an incorrect assertion to say that all businesses in China are government owned. And and I base that on to visit there is to be staggered by the growth that's taking place there. We know what government ownership looks like in countries. It looks like desperate poverty. It was the old Soviet Union. It was China in the past when its per cap the per capita income in the country was $175 a year. Uh, and the people were literally starving. That's government ownership. What's happening in China today is massive and very exciting growth that's going to that enriches the American people every single day they go to work. Um, in terms of tariffs in the past protect economy, I don't buy that. That's the scene. Okay, we're protecting a certain industry. The unseen is what we would be doing. If the federal government weren't protecting certain industries at the expense of everyone, let's never forget that an economy is just a collection of individuals. 
did that help the American people that productive producers around the world weren't allowed to serve their needs? I, I don't think so. And then I don't buy the notion that um, that, that this protection made, made U.S. industry better off. We know well, wherever we live in the U.S., that if there are lots of businesses competing to serve our needs domestically, the competition lifts, lifts their game up to our betterment. Well, all global trade is is an acknowledgement that there's some talented businesses around the world competing, and they lift our game up. When, we're, when businesses are protected, they're harmed because they're not exposed to the reality of the marketplace, but then every single American is harmed because we don't get as much in return for our paychecks. So I really don't buy that, that the tariffs back in the day in the, in the 19th century are what helped the U.S. become a great economic nation. If anything, they slowed us down. John. Well, we have our Canadian we have our Canadian friend Kel in the chat room was asking about your opinion. Obviously, now we know what it is about the Canada U.S. tariff war. Uh, but you're saying the Canadians are suffering under his tariffs at the grocery stores, so there is a real effect on the people. Without question, and so uh, Justin Trudeau was understandably bothered by President Trump's talk of imposing tariffs and imposing them. But what an odd thing. His response is to then slap tariffs on American goods. A more enlightened response would have been to say, okay, President Trump, you are injuring your people by lifting uh, tax rates on goods coming into your country, and you're actually slowing down economic growth by doing so because, again, the more countries can – people can divide up work with others, the more productive they are. We're going to do the opposite, and oh, by the way, we, I'm going to use the, my bully pulpit – to remind your people on a daily basis that the very president who promised to drain the swamp in Washington is actually protecting a few narrow special interests at the expense of every single American. And I, I, I think that's the way to fight what is idiotic and with that which damages the people, not by injuring your people even more by putting up tariffs on foreign goods coming into your country. The answer – the simple truth is the U.S. – Every country in the world could have major tariffs on U.S. goods, and the U.S. would still be exponentially better off if it said, we don't care what you do. We're going to have zero tariffs here because our workers would still benefit from having the whole world competing to serve their needs, and they would still benefit from the division of labor that as a rule lifts up every worker. Wouldn't I still say that isn't it a good negotiating tool? And I'm going to use one major example where I think it would be good because at this point in time, most of the uh, the steel we're importing for military purposes that have to be to certain specs are, is coming from China. Would it not be better to be produced here? Because if we have China produce this the steel, they know what our military requires and how to defeat it. And also possibly to put in something into it that would make it easier to be defeated. Would it not at that point encourage more U.S. industry to produce our own steel for our own military purposes? I, I don't think so, and, and for a variety of reasons. For one, if the Chinese are, are selling large amounts of steel and other materials into the U.S., why on earth would they want to go to war with us? It would be economically suicidal. You'd be literally attacking 
their best market. It would be the equivalent of McDonald's around the country one day just opening up their stores and as, as customers filed in, shooting them. But you wouldn't do that because it would, why would you kill your best customers? And so if the Chinese are selling to us, the odds of war in the first place are exponentially less. That's the beauty of trade is it makes war very, very expensive. And so if people are fearful of China, it's all the more reason to remain open to it because then for them to go to war would just be – would be incredibly expensive and realistically suicidal. Um, in terms of could they make manufacture bad steel? No, if, well, if they did, we wouldn't buy it. Um, there is the argument always, well, if we're buying all of our steel from China, what happens if we are at war with them? Where are we going to get the steel? And the simple truth is we'd still get it from China, and let me explain. If you go back to World War I, the U.S. placed an embargo on Germany, and suddenly we weren't allowed to trade with German producers. Well, all of a sudden, exports from the U.S. into Scandinavia surged. Well, it wasn't that the Scandinavians were buying our goods any more than they were in the past. It was just Germans buying them through Scandinavians. Fast forward to 1973, uh, the uh, Arab countries and OPEC put a ban, ban on selling oil to the United States. We still consumed every bit as much Arab oil in, in the U.S. as we did before. We just bought it from those they sold it to. Simply put, the U.S. could have zero barrels of oil in all 50 states. We could be at embargoed by every oil-producing nation on earth, and we could be at war with them too. And we would still consume all of their oil as though it had bubbled up in West Texas. We just buy from those they sold to. And so applied to China, if they are the lowest-cost producer of steel or if they're subsidizing the lowest cost, we owe it to our taxpayers to buy their steel. And if we're at war with them, we'll still buy their steel. We'll just buy it from those they sell to. There, you can't, there's no accounting for the final destination of any good. And so when, when politicians say we've got to protect certain industries with national security in mind, they are lying, and they are lying big time. John. Wow. <laughs> John. Um, yep. What kind of impact, if any, is the International Monetary Fund having in the era of um, Trump on our economy? Um, IMF, probably not a big impact on our, our economy. The IMF uh, basically – but has had a very negative impact on the rest of – on poor countries around the world. And you know the reason for that is simple. A well-run business never runs out of money, and it doesn't because if you're a well-run business, there will always be credit sources out there in the private sector willing to fund what you're doing. I mean look at Amazon. Amazon's one of the most valuable companies in the world today. For many, many years, it had no profits, yet it still kept attracting, attracting investment. Investors were very intrigued by what Jeff Bezos was doing, and they've been vindicated. Well, countries are no different. If you're a well-run country, you never run out of – you can always borrow in the world markets if, if, if your government needs operating funds. And so when you think about the IMF and the World Bank, that a, that a country would go to them for economic advice and or funds is the surest sign that it's a corrupt country because a well-run country would never need to go to a government entity for money. There would always be private investment 
and there'd always be private actors coming into that country looking to prosper. And so I think the IMF is, is, is very negative for, for countries around the world, the poorest ones most notable and the, mo- the cr- most corrupt ones most notably, simply because almost by definition it and the World Bank exist to prop up that which is corrupt and poorly run. Again, if you're a well-run country, you don't need them. Well, I always felt that we should actually withdraw from the IMF. Uh, I, we we prop them up. I would say with but ninety percent of it. Of it. Uh, yeah, I, I I would totally agree with you. I think we should withdraw from the IMF. I think we should withdraw from the World Bank. They serve no economic purpose. And so, and and I and if you remove the U.S. from the equation, you deprive them of just about any amount of uh, legitimacy. And so I think the answer is very clear that you withdraw. Um, and, you know, it, it's a different subject, but you could look at the Fed the same way. Um, a, there's a lot of mysticism about what the Fed can do, what it can't do, and what it's done. But it did begin as a lender of last resort to solvent banks. But it's the same idea there. It's unheard of, and it's always been unheard of for a solvent bank to go to the Fed for a loan because to do so is an admission of bankruptcy. It's an admission that you exhausted all the myriad market actors out there willing to lend to a well-run bank, and so you had to come to a quasi-governmental entity. And so at best, in the banking sense, the Fed exists to prop up poorly run banks. Well, I look at the IMF and World Bank in the same way. They're not necessary to well-run the opposite of corrupt countries. They only exist to prop up the corrupt. So let's, without question, let's let's withdraw because in doing so, I think I think entities like that fall fairly quickly. Well, I have to apologize if people are hearing noise in the background. I've got a huge, huge thunderstorm coming in on me right now. Holy moly! Same here. You're not in South Carolina, are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm in Washington D.C., but you would not believe it. It's I, there's it's 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 a it's it's thundering right now. Holy moly! Oh man, um, there's so much to talk about on your book because it is a great book and it's not a big read. It's like only I think 146 pages, but it gives people an idea of what they can do, and it gives them um, hope that they don't have to be stuck in this in the rut they are if they're willing to make the effort and work hard. And you mentioned about happiness, uh, but happiness isn't the wherewithal. It's, um, oh, good Lord, my mind just went completely blank. My mind just went completely blank. Oh, how stupid of me. When people think they're happy, they're always something more. There's always the need for a little bit more, the ability to strive. And I think in that is where we find the joy. No, I think so, and, and let me be I, – I stress in the book, um, it was eye-opening for me to write it to realize the countless ways in which people showcase their talents in a developed country like the U.S. And, and my point in, in talking about it is that I don't buy that anyone's lazy. I really don't. I don't buy that anyone's – one lacks intelligence either, but I think the smaller economy – the more forms of skill and intelligence that are suffocated by it. Again, I take us all back to 150 years ago 
when you pretty much knew what you were going to do all your life is going you were going to work on a farm. If that had been my only option, I would have been an object of pity. I would have looked stupid. I would have been viewed as unintelligent. I would have been viewed as lazy. Because nothing about working on the farm has anything to do what I think is good at, what I think I'm good at. So in addition to being lucky to have been born in the United States, I'm lucky, extraordinarily lucky to have been born at a time in which I'm able to do something that I love uncontrollably and be compensated for it. And let me be – I'm getting to my point here. I used to think I was lazy. I used to marvel at the work ethic of others and say, I wish I could do that. Particularly investment bankers I knew on Wall Street, I thought, how do they put in those hours? Well, it's, it's kind of simple. They work extraordinarily hard, but they do because doing that finance reinforces their skills in a major way. And so the hours blend into life. It's what they can't get enough of. Well, that describes me in writing. It describes Warren Buffett. I'm, I am not comparing myself to the genius of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett doing what he does, Lindsey Buckingham playing guitar and singing for, for Fleetwood Mac, LeBron James on a basketball court. His intelligence is otherworldly. And the point is we more and more people get to showcase their intelligence in this prosperous world we live in. And as it grows, the number of people getting to showcase their intelligence, and yes, their work ethic is going to grow. Everyone's got it within them. But in a small economy, the ways in which you can showcase it are so limited that a lot of people are suffocated and don't get to be great. That is so very true. But you also wrote at one point uh, that inequality is good. You know, we have it where people feel that they have the right to happiness. No, you have the right to pursue happiness. And not everyone is equal. Each one of us is individual. So inequality is a good thing. Oh, thank goodness there's inequality. Think about a miserable world, kind of world we live in without inequality. I mean, I, I asked the listeners a question. When's the last time – how many of you have Apple devices? How many of you have a Dell computer or something like it? How many of you have ordered on Amazon in the past month? Well, you know, Steve Jobs died worth, what, $10 billion. Michael Dell's worth about $30 billion. Jeff Bezos is $150 billion. And so how many of you listeners would say would, – would blanch at the notion of if we could have 10 Jeff Bezos and 10 Steve Jobs and 10 Michael Dells? I think all of us would, would say yes, 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 please, because think about how much better our lives would be if there were more of them. Because think about what they've done for us. And so are, are, are we hurt because LeBron James is the best basketball player in the world? Are we hurt because Jeff Bezos has made it possible to buy the world's plenty all with a click of a mouse? Do any of us go to bed at night and say it's just wrong that, that, that Paul McCartney can look at an instrument that he's never seen before and almost intuitively know how to play it so genius is, is, are his musical talents? The freer the society, the more their inequality is because all that is is individuals getting to do what they do best. You know, we don't want to, a world without inequality is a world of misery. Where there's, where there's inequality is where there are people producing to meet our needs and, and, and saving us from an early death because they're curing diseases and they're improving our lives. Someone's going to make it true soon enough that 
the average person in the United States, even poor people, have private jets. Guaranteed, remember where you heard it, that's where we're headed. Just as cars used to be rarer than millionaires, and now everyone's got one, soon enough it's going to be that average people will fly around in private planes. So someone's going to get very rich for doing that. But do we, would we say, oh, no, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that because we don't want society to become more equal. The more of the inequality, the better off we all are. Yeah, it it comes around to now when we talk about inequality, people turn around and go, the evil corporations and the shareholders, the greedy, greedy shareholders. But people don't realize, and those stocks, those shares affect their uh, IRAs, their bank accounts, their pensions. It, it, those shareholders are what keep those things going. Yeah, without question, let, let you know. Try this on some witless economist sometime. Ask this person who bemoans uh, shareholders, say, how are companies and jobs created? The simple truth is that there are no companies and no jobs and no, no wages without shareholders. They are the ones putting their hard-earned wealth at risk, and without them, we don't have any opportunity. Look, I'm not rich. But this is why I constantly clamor for tax cuts, massive tax cuts for the rich. And I do because they don't spend it all. They can't spend it all. They've got so much money, there would be no reasonable way to spend it all. And so what do they do? They invest it. And when they invest it, experiments are taken. Companies grow. Jobs are created that we get to fill. Without investors, life would be miserable. We, w- we wouldn't be on the phone right now. Everything we have today is a function of savings and investing. Just think how much more we would have if people got to keep more of their wealth. John. Well, we had a, you know, a, a question. Of... We had a question. I'm just, Curtis, I just want to get to a question that uh, Ron okay. had asked in the uh, chat room earlier, because uh, we have so many people asking questions, I can't keep up with all of them. But he was asking your opinion on zero hedge funds. Zero hedge or zero hedge funds? Well, he wrote zero hedge. Oh, zero hedge. Okay, so that's that's a that's a website. It's uh, it generally focuses on. Um, on uh, Wall Street and finance, and it's somewhat conspiratorial. I'm not a big fan. Uh, Zero Hedge makes a case that banks are all corrupt and that the Fed is the Fed is in cahoots with banks, and that they're you know I, I just don't buy. I think Wall Street's amazing. Let me be clear, because I think Wall Street's amazing, I thought the bailouts in 2008 were a disaster. But I do love what Wall Street does simply because it's one thing to come up with a business idea, and it's quite another to find finance board. And so we thankfully have talented people who put together savers with, with, uh, with entrepreneurs on the way to immense advances economically. Okay, so once again, I hated the bailouts because for Wall Street to be vibrant, businesses are going to fail on occasion. And that's the source of its vibrancy. Silicon Valley isn't rich because all of its businesses succeed. Nine out of ten businesses there fail. That's the source of its wealth. Bad ideas die a quick death. And so I thought it was a huge mistake that we propped up uh, certain uh, financial entities that should have been allowed to go under in 2008. Uh, but so in answer, Zero Hedge, I'm not a big fan. I'm, a, I'm 
I'm far more I'm far more pleased with Wall Street and and I think that zero hedge vastly overstates the Fed's power over the economy. Well, John. there's been a call to abolish the Fed or to at least audit it. Where do you stand on that? Um, my take is that um, auditing would, wouldn't achieve much at all. Abolish it? Yeah, why would we have it? Uh, the Fed serves no useful purpose, as I point out in my second book, Who Needs the Fed? The Fed began as a lender of last resort to solvent banks, but it's unheard of for a solvent bank to go to it for a loan. So it exists to prop up uh, insolvent banks, bad for the banking system. The Fed is a bank regulator. Oh, gosh, well, what a disastrous re- bank regulator it is. You're asking people who couldn't get jobs at banks to police those who could. Uh, not going to work. The Fed tries to set the overnight rate that banks lend to one another. Well, you don't need the Fed for that. That's a price like any other. So my take, as I argue in column after column in books, is that if the Fed disappeared tomorrow, no one would notice. Congress keeps it around because Congress and the president, they want a whipping boy. If the economy is bad, they create the fiction. Oh, yeah, the Fed caused it. But we don't need the central bank. We don't need the Federal Reserve. Just abolish it. It serves no useful purpose, and at times is, is, it has a very negative impact. Um, I take you back to 2008. The Fed was a, very much a part of bailing out what shouldn't have been bailed out, and in doing so created a crisis. So I say end it and end it quickly. I don't think it's going to be ended, but it should. Curtis, go ahead. Yes, um I guess it was like maybe 15 years ago, there was a movement to um, allow citizens to invest a small percentage of their social social security into the stock market. But at the time, a um, certain party, which had demonized um, the stock market, um, they were able to um, to negate that that movement. Um, now. I would propose that you know putting two or three percent of your your earnings into the stock market you know is not as risky as it sounds and it would it would enhance that person's chance of getting a better return on their money than just leaving it you know in social security, which is supposed to go bankrupt here in the next fifteen years or so and i I think it would also be a, a boost for the economy. What are your thoughts on that? No, I think you're 100% right. Think about it. What if what if we, we we give, what, 6% of our earnings to Social Security and then our employers give another 6%? What if we were able to – what if that was ours? Because we don't own our Social Security accounts. We have no – Per the Supreme Court, we have no legal right to it. Now, most of us will collect Social Security, but we have no legal right to it. What if we were able to keep that money? What if we, were, we had the option to opt out of Social Security and get the exponentially greater returns that come from the stock market? Now, are there times that stock markets trend downward? Well, of course they do. That's just, that's just the normal part of life. But imagine, think about what people have lost out on. People complain about inequality. Well, one reason, in addition to progress that people are so unequal, is that we've forced so many workers to direct their wealth into the Social Security Fund, which is just owning uh, treasury income streams or having access to exposure to them. 
Think about what we could have done in the stock market during that time. Think of all the wealth that count millions of Americans missed out on earnings because they had to be in Social Security rather than the stock market over time. And then think about what the economy loses because as, as you've alluded to, the federal government is – there's no money in the Social Security trust funds. So the federal government takes in the dollars and then spends them, consumes them. Think about what, where the economy would be today if trillions and trillions of dollars had flowed through our accounts into the stock market, into the real economy. The American people would be much better off, but so would the economy be better off. So without question, um, I support the idea of giving people the freedom to get out of Social Security. You know, it's funny because um, Ronald Reagan had started that, and I remember when he was doing it. And I said back then, I said, if I could take the money that's going into Social Security and just simply put it into an IRA or even a simple savings account, by the time I retired, I'd be close to a millionaire. And I, you look at the amount that I was earning and saying that had I another 30 years of employment, I would have been. But instead, you're living paycheck to paycheck because you're waiting for that Social Security to hit the bank that one day of the month. It, it, it's oh, you, one of the most so detrimental right. things they've done. Hugely detrimental. Think about look, look, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 742 in 1982, and today it's at 26000 And so if you had been gradually putting money – your money into the stock market over that time, you're talking about more than a million dollars, and all because it's staggering to think. And so when government promises something, always be skeptical because they can only promise you what they've taken from someone else, and almost by definition they're going to do it in too left-footed fashion. If we had the freedom to expose ourselves to the most dynamic economy in the world rather than relying on government, think how much better the retirement years would be for millions and millions of Americans. It's, it's, the robbery that is Social Security is quite something. And not only that, when you die, they, especially if you're, you're married, your spouse stopped getting that. You know, They'll get the large amount of the two. But that's it, and um, those were your earnings, you know, and they stop it. Yep. You, you don't get any money to leave to your spouse or your children. They give you uh, a couple of hundred bucks for your funeral, and, and that's it. It's, it's, you're so right. It's, a, it's, it's worse than a Ponzi it scheme. It's, it's robbery for, what, it, for what, it, what people could have had. And they say, well, stock market's not as reliable. What is reliable about, what, about the returns from Social Security? And as Curtis alludes, think about what this would mean for millions of families. They could be leaving behind a much more substantial nest egg to, to, their, to their loved ones. It's, it's, it's cruelty what's going on there, and, and yet uh, in fairness on this one, and the Democrats have routinely demonized the happy – something that would have been very happy, people having the right to own their own retirement or own more of it. Well, you know, John, I'm looking at the clock. We're down within the last four and a half minutes of the show. Between you and Robert Spencer, it has gone so fast with so much fun. Your book is called The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. It's an excellent book. 
Uh, there was so much more I was going to ask you about, like Brexit, <laughs> a lot of other things. You had an excellent chapter about McDonald's, the political correctness that has killed McDonald's. And I don't see them surviving because you're right. When they first opened, they had the world's best fries because they, they fried them in the same fat that had the meat in it. But now vegetarians said, no, you can't give me fries that were deep fried in, in fat that had meat in it. How dare you? And they are killing. It's the most bland-tasting food you ever want compared to when they first opened. This is all in your book, an excellent book, The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. There's a link to it on our show page, so when people catch the podcast later on, they can click on your name, go straight to the website, and get your book. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm very passionate about my new book. I I just – I think – uh, we're in the midst of an explosion of jobs that don't feel like work, and I want people to realize that, that the path to happiness is there uh, more now than it ever has been, and, and they just need to reorient how they think of work because it's not what it used to be. It's not all about drudgery. There's the chance to turn what you love into a lifelong and remunerative career, and so I want, I, I want to open people's eyes to it, and so I, I appreciate the chance to come on your show and talk about it. And it's never too late, <laughs> no matter what your age. Mm-hmm. Tell them it's never too late. <laughs> John, right. it has been a great pleasure. And uh, I invite you to come back on in the near future. Thank you so much for joining us. John Tamney. Thanks for check having out me. His website. It has been our pleasure. Check out his website and check out his book, which you can get up on Amazon. We're at the end of the show. We will be back here on Friday Friday, we have Katie Arrington. She will be joining us uh, fresh out of the hospital. Uh, She's still running for Congress here in South Carolina. Uh, And also we'll have Larry Harvey with us. So, Curtis, until then, I say good night and God bless. I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Thank you for all of you that have joined us in the chat rooms, uh, also up on Facebook and YouTube. Until then, good night and God bless.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.